for me, it's really important that this business is sustainable. So I want to be here in 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And even if it's not me bodily doing everything 30 years down the road, like I want this business to have a presence in our community. So I have to make sure that it's sustainable and viable. You know, I really want to optimize every year more for the things that I really enjoy and love to do. And then potentially drop back on some of the things that maybe just don't make sense for the business. I mean, one of my big things is I just love spreading knowledge and sharing information because that makes me feel like what we're doing is also worthwhile for the larger community. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 629. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florist shops and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S. supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even to backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnysseeds.com. I hope you've been enjoying our 10-year retrospective as much as I have. It has been so fun to reconnect with one of our guests dating back to the Slow Flowers podcast first episode in 2013 and continue to pick up where I left off with one of our amazing Slow Flowers members who appeared as a guest on the show. This week, we turned the dial back to early March 2020, literally on the eve of the COVID-19 pandemic. I interviewed Philadelphia area flower farmer and farmer florist Mara Tyler about her diversified floral enterprise, and the word COVID did not occur in our conversation a single time. Just days, felt like moments later, our lives changed dramatically, and in many ways, we still have not shed the ominous presence of the pandemic in our industry. But the seasons continue to roll along as witnessed with this past week's fall equinox, the continued blooming of our floral crops and cutting gardens, and the awareness we all have of our dependence and reliance on nature and making our planet healthy. I re-listened to my 2022 interview with Mara last weekend while walking on the pathway along Seattle's Puget Sound. It was quite a beautiful day. The earbuds delivered such an inspiring conversation, and I was delighted to listen to Mara's story once again. And I can't wait to share it with you as an encore episode in the celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Slow Flowers podcast. Let's jump right in as we hear from Mara Tyler.
Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. And I'm so excited today to have as my guest, someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, Mara Tyler of The Farm at Oxford. And she's based in Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. Hi, Mara. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Oh, yeah. It's like we're on the opposite coast, so it's hard to get 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 a time that works, but I'm I'm glad I got you before your bu- season got super busy. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're already busy. Um, <laughs> give us a snapshot of the farm at Oxford and like how you created the farm and what why is it why is it named that? Sure. So we actually are a boutique flower farm and we're located right outside of Oxford, Pennsylvania and Lincoln University. Um, but I actually get a lot of questions about our name, too, because I think people are like, is it the only farm in Oxford or are you a farm in Oxford? But we actually our farm is on Oxford Road. Um, And so that's kind of why we chose the farm at Oxford. But, you know, it's one of those things where you look back at it years ago and you're like, if I could go back and rename it, I think I would, because we get so many confused people who are like, what? Why do you do stuff in other cities if you (laughs) Oh, well, yes. yeah. You know what? It's like it could be Oxford Farm or the farm at Ox- on Oxford Road, but it's. I'm sure that your core customers know who you are. Yes, totally. Like, I mean, six years in, it's kind of, it, it works for us. And I think about rebranding all the time, but I don't really know what I would, <laughs> what I would name it. So we just kind of keep it the way that it is. Oh, I like but, it. Yeah. And <laughs> how, but, um, how far outside, how far outside of um, Philadelphia are you? We're actually just about an hour outside of Philly. So we're located about 15 minutes from Longwood Gardens. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, um, and, and actually people always ask us this too. You know, they ask us, did you want a farm? Did you move out here specifically because you wanted to start this farm or you wanted to be close to Longwood? And uh, actually all of this was just such a happenstance. And mm. I guess like luck, not even realizing like where we really wanted to be in this area. And it just worked out perfectly for us. And people who don't may not know about Longwood Gardens, it is like the one of the premier public gardens in the country in terms of horticulture, but also floriculture, right? Yes, definitely. And one thing I didn't realize when we moved out here, but now I've made, you know, so many friends at Longwood. Um, and we actually teach, or I actually teach there as well, but they are a huge, um, investor in horticulture just from, like, from all around the world. So they have a huge education program and they have people that come from all over the world to, um, learn at their venue at Longwood and they have interns. I mean, I think there's like a thousand people that are in their education program. So it's always so impressive to meet people from, you know, Ireland or Scotland who work at gardens over there that are extremely well-known and famous and they come to Longwood to learn even more. Oh, well, uh, I know we're going to talk about your farm, but I'm just curious, what, what are you, what courses or topics are you teaching? So, um, so I've actually done a series. I, I, I can say series because now it's been two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, because they know that I'm a local farmer, they actually, um, I do the series called know and grow and it's like local. So last year we did a Dahlia, um, a Dahlia workshop and session where, um, Longwood bust him to the farm here 
and we walked around the dahlias and I talked about how we grew. And then we went back to Longwood and we did a design session. So I do um, some education, some design, and we actually have a class this coming week um, where we are going to a greenhouse grower about 45 minutes from us, which is where I get a lot of my stems in the winter. And um, I think there's 24 people that are coming with us and we're basically going to spend an hour there touring the greenhouses. And this is one of the oldest greenhouses in Pennsylvania that's still producing. And then we'll come back to Longwood and we'll design with their stems. Oh, it's really interesting that that type of curriculum is gaining popularity at a public garden horticulture center. Um, It confirms exactly what I've experienced, you know, kind of on the West Coast. I, I did an event with the Denver Botanic Garden about 18 months ago where it was three days of events where there were tours to local flower farms in the Denver Boulder area. And then we did a hands-on workshop at uh, Red Daisy Farm and we had a lecture and like all the facets of connecting people who love gardening with the fact that there's this floral agriculture side of things and then design kind of blends it all together. So I love that they're having you do that. It sounds like you could do that for every crop you grow. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But, you know, it is great to, I guess, bring that small snapshot of local to such a nationwide name. Um, And obviously they they do tons of classes there. And so I'm just, I feel very blessed to be in an area and to know, I guess, the individuals who think that this is important and want to bring it to to Longwood. So it's been great. Well, that's great for your brand, too. So let's talk about your brand. Uh, What are all the components of the farm at Oxford? Oh, gosh, let's see. (laughs) I didn't even list all these out. So uh, there's so many components. So we originally started just, you know, doing cut stems. And as I think so many farmers have kind of found, um, it is very hard to grow enough flowers on a scale to where you can really have a sustainable business um, just doing cuts. And it, it absolutely is possible. But one thing that I learned along the way was that there were all these other facets to the business um, that I really enjoyed outside of just farming the cut stems. So we um, we obviously sell t- wholesale to local designers and florists. And thankfully, kind of where we are too, right outside of Philly, there's a huge wedding market between Mm. Philly and DC, obviously. Um, So we have so many wedding designers and so many of them are absolutely on board with uh, buying local, which is really wonderful. Um, But besides that, We ended up starting to do workshops, which I think a lot of farmers do as well, because it's a great value add. So you can use your flowers. I've taken so many design courses, um, and now I obviously teach them. And so there's a lot of locals and even people around us in Maryland and Virginia and New Jersey that want to learn about farming and or design. And so it's been a great add to the farm to be able to do these workshops. Um, and then about two years ago, we actually added in a retail component to the farm, which has now grown into almost 50% of the farm's revenue, which is wonderful for us. Wait, um, on, on your farm? Um, so no, actually it is, uh, we have a shop that is about 15 minutes from us in Kennett. So right near Longwood mm-hmm. and we're part of, um, we're part of an artisan collective. So we essentially lease space inside of this collective in, um, Kennett. And so I, I pay to have this space in there. And when we first started doing it two years ago, it was a place where I had done some pop-ups. And so the owner, Tara, she approached me and she said, you know, Hey, what do you think about having a small space in here? And obviously with 
plants and perishables and cut flowers, it's really hard to to have a retail space. And I think that's why a lot of you know farmers and and people in the floral industry don't dive into that. Um, and also Works, which is where we're located, is only open Friday through Sunday. Mm. But for us, that was perfect because then I only had to worry about stocking it, you know, for two to three days. Um, and so we kind of, I said, sure, you know, let's try it. Let's see. And now it's grown into such a big piece of the business. Um, we do plants, uh, we do cut, cut stems. We've done workshops there. It's a really small space, but we've grown a really wonderful local clientele who, um, you know, I think they kind of view me almost like as a miniature terrain. Because, I was just like, going to say that's <laughs> terrain is like the looming horticulture yeah. center right there. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I love going to terrain. We actually sell our flowers to terrain and they're a huge local supporter as well, but we're, you know, a good 30 to 40 minutes from terrain. Mm. And so I think that people, they love having something that's right close by. And especially if people are going to Longwood and they want to come into Kennet right afterwards um, or whatever, then they could pick up a plant without having to to drive, you know, the 30 sure. to 45 minutes. So, And Kennet has kind of this charm where people can have a lunch or, you know, do other things on their way to or from Longwood Gardens, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very cute little town. And I mean, their, their claim to fame is that they're the mushroom capital of the world. So, <laughs> Wow. So on, I do remember um, that I'm, that's why I was so confused about when you said uh, it was 50% of your, or up to 50% of your revenue. I was thinking, wow, on your farm. But I do remember seeing you originally announced that you were starting this retail like business and, um, and it's now you're like in your second year doing it, it sounds like. Yeah, we're actually, we actually just hit our two-year anniversary. So I guess we're technically starting our third mm. year. And last year I actually expanded from our space. So we had a little five by 10 space. It was literally super tiny mm-hmm. in a window because we had no idea if it was it would succeed. And then last summer I actually took a second space inside of the collective. So now I have like a 10 by eight space and a five by 10 space. Are they... Do they have different product or are they connected or does it even, are people understanding about the sort of little, the little space and the big space? Yeah. So thankfully they're like right next to each other. So when you walk in the door, it's the first thing that you see, which is great. So like, um, when you walk in the door to the left is our original space and it has window space and then right in front of you is the bigger space. So thankfully it does tie in nicely and that just kind of worked out. Mm. Um, but it has been great for the for us because now we have a twelve year a twelve month income as opposed to like really having a seasonal income like most cut flower growers. And I'm I I'm just trying to picture and I hope you can share some photos, but it sounds like um in a way you're using this vehicle the way some other farms might use a farmer's market in terms of like typically they're on the weekends and typically they're, you know, seasonal and you don't need full-time employees, but you're, you have the advantage of it being 12 months and year round. And I'm sure that's just, oh my gosh, it's just nice to have that winter income. Oh, totally. And actually our holiday income, I want to say it accounts for almost 15% of the annual revenue of the total business. So it's like, um, and, and that is one thing that was lacking here, I think, is that people didn't really have a place to go to get, let's say, 
handmade wreaths or like specialty poinsettias. And so really one thing I pride myself on in the shop is not really having a lot of super common stuff that you could find at like, you know, Lowe's or or Home Depot. It's like trying to find the specialty plants that I would like if I was going to a a nursery or some like a really cool plant shop. And so that's one thing that I think, um, has kind of set us apart is that I think like if I was going to this shop, what would I want to have? Mm. And so the, my customers really know that like, if, if it's available, available anywhere to be had, like I will try to bring it in for them. So so that's fun. Does that just make you a really great sleuth or you, you know, like you mentioned going to this greenhouse with the long Longwood gardens, um, uh, course you're coming, you're teaching coming up. Like you've just developed these, uh, nurseries that you work with that will sell to you? Yeah. And, and thankfully, I mean, the internet is super helpful, but I've always been a big researcher. So it's like, just, I guess, paying attention to, to what's around us and like looking at where other places are getting their plants and then trying to see if I can forge a relationship with them. Um, and the, the greenhouse that we're going to in Lidditz, um, actually Ellen from local color flowers, she originally was buying from them and I was turned on to them through her Instagram feed and then approached them to say, Hey, would you sell to someone like me? And they also have a retail business. They don't do a ton of wholesale. And so I was really thankful that they were willing to strike up that wholesale relationship with me, um, you know, so that I could offer flowers to my customers in the winter and have them be local. So are they like um, bulb crops primarily? What what kind of uh, varieties are you selling? So they, uh, actually, it's really impressive. They, um, I mean, they don't have them this year, but last year at this time they had delphinium. So wow. they grow, yeah, they grow a lot of like later spring and summer crops. So right now, next week, my, um, my class will be able to use um, stock, snaps, they have daffodils, but I, I don't think we're getting them because ours actually may be ready. Mm. Um, they have, they usually grow iris. They have sweet peas. Um, they also grow a lot of heirloom dianthus carnations that are from like the early 1900s. And they're one of the only greenhouse growers in the U.S., I think, that's still producing those crops. So um, we'll have a couple stems of those, not a ton. Um, oh, and they do ranunculas and butterfly ranunculas um, anemone, a lot of anemone. So it, it is like primarily the spring crops that like all have in another month, month and a half in the field. Um, but they do sometimes have some summer crops. Like last year they did grow a lot of delphinium and it was amazing to have delphinium. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Um, did you say the name of that business? I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't want to mention it. No, it's fine. Um, it's called Hendricks Greenhouses. Oh, it's in in Lydic, Lydic, Pennsylvania. Yeah. I've heard of them. Wow. So you're saying yeah. they typically sell retail, but they're so far away from your market that they're okay selling wholesale to you and obviously to Ellen up in, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, I mean, and the other thing is they're greenhouse growers, so they don't have a ton of crops. And that's part of it is they have to be able to supply their retail customers. And they've been there for almost a hundred years. So they have a huge retail base around them. And so, you know, um, it was definitely like six months of trying to build that relationship. And now I'm grateful when I email her, you know, she's like, yes, you can have that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so many things I want to ask you about this retail facet of your business, but I guess the, the one that comes to mind that maybe uh, listeners might be thinking about is, um, what is the risk factor? Uh, Are you buying straight out inventory or are you doing things on kind of a consignment basis? Like how do you have 
like a, I don't know, a, you seem somewhat risk avert, uh, non risk averse. Like you don't mind jumping in and just making a, making a well, whole new business. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, keep in mind, we did start small, like with the five by 10 space. Yeah. And so, and then also the nice thing about the collective too, is that we do pay a small amount to lease it, but there is a percentage that they take Mm. Um, of each sale. And so that does lessen the risk to, to me, because it's basically like, if I don't sell anything, then I'm not really out too much money. Um, but once we saw that it was, once we launched and we started picking up, I could clearly see that there was a market for it. Um, and so originally, you know, it was very small and I didn't stock a lot of stuff, but now if you go in there, it really, there really is a lot of inventory in there. Um, and we do have to hold a fair amount of inventory like here on the farm. So whether it's, um, cup, you know, like plants that we get a lot of plants from like a greenhouse mm-hmm. that's about an hour away from us for the shop. Mm-hmm. And then I also put them into the farm. So a lot of times I do an order for the farm and then I'll also add on a percentage for the shop. So it's like, I'm already ordering it for the farm and then Got I'll it. add say 10%. So it's really not it's not too risky. And then at this point now going into year three, I've kind of gotten a pretty decent idea of what my customers want. Um, there is, there is always that outlier, like the first holiday shop we had in the, in the space, I ordered tons, tons of specialty poinsettias because I was like, everyone is going to want these like <laughs> really crazy poinsettias. Like I would love these. And I, I like worked so hard to sell them. And at the end, like I finally got rid of maybe four-fifths of them, but next year I was like, I'm only ordering like 20%. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah. there is a lot of trial and error too. Yeah. Are you also ordering hard goods and accessories and gifts or is it all herbaceous cut or li- living plants? So most of it's herbaceous or like living items, but we do actually um, carry a fair amount of hard goods in terms of pots and things like mm-hmm. that. But interestingly enough, like our audience doesn't really come in and buy, let's say, vases. Like they're really not interested in buying vases. If I ever have vases, they just sit there. But plant pots, like they love those. Um, and a lot of times I finish the product. So we'll get the products in and I'll pot them up for people. And one thing they love is like just being able to get it ready to go and like give us a gift. Um, and so I've also had to kind of suss out what percentage should be finished and what percentage people just want to grab the plant. And then maybe they have their own pot at home. Well, and that's like a value added service as well, then for you kind of selecting the pots that you think will complement the plants and mm-hmm. neat. Yeah. And I, I actually love that part. Like the part of why I wanted to do the shop and when Tara asked me about it, I was interested is because anyone who's ever been to my house, like I have so many plants and pots all over the house and I really like having that green space indoors. And so I was like really excited about trying to bring that to, to like my local customers. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm also wondering if the shop and your presence in it, and I'm sure you're not physically there every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but you're kind of the face of the business. Um, is it serve as a marketing, uh, you know, living marketing billboard for your other facets of your business, like designing mm-hmm. for weddings and events? Yeah, definitely. And that was one other reason that I wanted to try the retail space was because we always had people asking us, 
where can I find your stuff? And mm. do, you have, do you have like an on-farm farm stand or we're not at a farmer's market, so how can I get your flowers? And so it was a question I always felt like I was disappointing people when they asked me because I feel like we were making it really hard for people to find our stuff. Um, <laughs> so, which honestly I think is something that a lot of farmers run into. You know? Right. Oh my um, gosh. But you don't, yeah. you want your privacy or your farm isn't really like accessible yeah. or whatever. And there's lots of reasons not to... Yeah. 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 And I mean, and we live here. And so that was our big thing is like, my son lives here, you know, like we have a family, it's a family farm. So, and we didn't have a farm stand. And so doing the retail space, now I have an address that I can give to people. And I'm like, every Friday through Sunday, you can find my stuff here, period. Like there is never any question about it. Um, and then that also has led to a lot of viral marketing because we have some real diehard followers who've told their friends or brought friends into the shop. And now, you know, and then also with the value add of adding things in, like we do DIY, DIY wedding stuff or the design workshops. Now people have kind of been trained to like either go into the shop to hear about stuff or, or just to kind of see what we have on our events calendar or follow me on Facebook or Instagram, because we always talk about what we're doing there. So it has definitely, um, um, I think taking the business to that next level to have that permanent, um, you know, address that people know they can always go right. to find something. Right. And the the collective is called Works. How do you spell that? Yeah, it's called Works. Like it works. You know, W O R K S. And um, it's really it's technically Works Kenneth Square, but the K S is. For, for Kennett Square. Okay. Um, and that's also always caused so much confusion for people because they're like, works what? <laughs> you know, <like> <laughs> oh, so. it could be really s- snappy and put W-E-R-K-S and like work it, you know? It's just, yeah. uh, I love it. Okay, so I saw that in uh, in writing on your website and I did not know why the K and S were capitalized. But now I realize <laughs> if you're in the neighborhood, you know what K-S means. So mm-hmm. yeah, it. I that's know. great. Well, so you said you're kind of doing, you've been, had the farm at Oxford for about six years. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you do before you started the flower farm? And like, what led you to uh, this wonderful chapter of your life? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, it's like I always tell people I did not intend to be, a, you know, a flower farmer or have a floral business in my 40s. But when I look back on it, um, I, I actually maybe feel like I was like, so I was born and raised in California. I married an East coaster. So my husband was um, raised in New Jersey and his family was kind of spread out all over Philadelphia and Maryland. Um, so I met him in California and then we used to take trips out here all the time. Um, fast forward. And, and actually my background is in digital marketing and I've spent 25 years in big corporations in California working for like Adobe Symantec, um, you know, uh, just uh, uh, Cisco, Intel, yeah. like the blue chip, up. the blue chip yeah, companies. Yeah. yeah. Like, so I've, I've worked in so many corporations. That was my background. And I, and I did marketing and I really loved the aspects of marketing, but I always kind of hated like working for other people. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I always felt like I was supposed to do something, but I wasn't sure exactly like what it was. So fast forward, we had a child, we were married for like, you know, 10 years and we kind of just were feeling burnt out and wanted to have a change in our lives. And we started looking to move. So we ended up deciding to move out east to the to the east. And no, I'd never lived anywhere else but California. Everyone always asked me that. Um, where where, also, in, where in California, by the way? Uh, San Jose area. So, uh, sure. you know, so like near the Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, 
And it is actually amazing coming out here how many people don't realize that there's a north and a south California. (laughs) (laughs) We get shut. Literally, the first year there, like, people are like, I love LA. I'm like, well, we didn't live anywhere near LA, but thanks. (laughs) Or I have a friend in California. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah. I have a friend in Santa Barbara. No, that's about seven hours away. <laughs> right. But um, so we we decided to move out here and it was a big step for us. But we always figured, you know, if we hate it, we can just go home. But we moved out here. We didn't intend to start a farm, didn't intend to buy a big property. We kind of started looking at properties and we were like, you know, in California, for anyone who's familiar with that area, your house is like on a postage stamp. It's tiny, right? So I'd always had plants and flowers like on these 6,000 square foot plots. And my husband was always like, why do we have plants everywhere? Like they're everywhere. Um, So coming out here, I was like, I actually want to have a real proper garden for like the first time in my life. Um, And so we came out here and we started looking at properties and I was volunteering on on Love and Fresh Flowers in Philly, Jenny Mm -hmm. Love's Farm. Um, and I, cause I wasn't, I was only working part-time when we came out. So I had some extra time. And so I was able to kind of see what a flower farm was to, you know, see how it operated. And at the same time, we were looking at properties and we wanted around three acres, but we kind of, we wanted an old house and just kept looking, couldn't find anything. And then finally we saw this property, which has 12 acres and it's an 1838 farmhouse that's been really lovingly taken care of over the years. So it's, it's in great condition. Um, and we're walking around on it. Our realtor hadn't gotten here yet. And we were walking around and we're staring at all this land. And my <laughs> husband's like, what would we do with this? Like, what would, like, what, what do we even do? And I said, well, you know, I could grow some flowers and we'll see if I can sell them. And if not, we'll just have like a really beautiful garden. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we ended up here. Wow. And, um, I mean, thankfully, again, being in this area, this area is so rich with art and culture, with the horticulture, um, you know, background that you have here. We have Longwood, Chanticleer, you know, Winterthur. For anyone who's ever been to this area, it's really, really rich if, with like these these world famous public beautiful gardens. Right. You have so many people who love gardening here, who love plants and flowers. And I mean, I really couldn't have chosen like a better place and in in Pennsylvania to have our farm. So it's so funny because people think California is like, you know, Nirvana, like you can grow everything there and you have four, you know, four season gardens and you had to go all the way across country to, to become a flower grower. Yeah. It is so ironic. Now when we go home and we're driving down 101 and we see like, you know, Monterey where all the farms are or whatever, but it's extremely rare to have that kind of land out there. And so it's it's such a different world. And out here, you know, we are actually able to, to to start the farm and land out here obviously is a lot cheaper, but I can grow so many things that I actually couldn't grow in California. Um, and that was one thing I didn't even realize until we came out here mm. is, is, is it just really opened such a such an array of, of plants and flowers to me that I didn't even know some of this stuff existed. And I'd been gardening since I was like 19. Did you grow up with gardeners? Like, were you raised by gardeners? Yeah, my mom has always had a garden. And I, um, I've, I've, I mean, <laughs> it's ironic if you look back on it because she had a big garden and all I ever did was weed and rake. And <laughs> Which made, hate, would make you hate it. <laughs> oh, I hated it. And I was like, this gardening thing is horrible. Like, who wants to be a gardener? And so it really wasn't until I moved out and got my own place and really missed having flowers around me that I started actually learning about what gardening was. 
Where do you think your design talent came from? Uh, you know, from being on the kind of using your your well, I wouldn't say digital marketing is only left brain. Obviously, you have to be super creative to do um, that that's job as well. But in terms of like a, more of an artistic uh, role in your mm-hmm. life. So I like to say that my design is actually learned. And I don't think that I am one of those people who is very artistic. And when I say that, people around me are always like, no way. Like, you know, you're, you're so creative, but I I'm not creative. And I think like this typical way. And so when I started doing design, I really had to take a lot of classes and, um, you know, look at a lot of things. I'm a very visual learner. And so the more, I, the more like photos I saw and the more classes I attended and things that, like working with my hands, um, I think I just learned how to do design. And mm-hmm. so I, I, there's so many talented people around me here who just have, it's, it's innate and they really just, it just comes out. For me, I had to work at it, I think. I appreciate that. I, I, I used to work in a newspaper with a colleague who, of course, had gone to some like really famous Ivy League college. And she would like to pronounce that, you know, you, you are born a journalist. You can't learn how to be a journalist. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm working really hard to learn how to be a journalist. So I don't buy your, you know, I don't buy that. And there is something to be said for just like, you know, showing up and doing, you know, doing the hard work of actually learning a skill Mm -hmm. and it, your muscle memory does work and it does come easier. So I, I applaud you for doing that because it's a big part of your business. It is. It is. And I, that's why I always tell people who come to my classes, like, you know, there's always like that one or two uh, like people in the class who are, oh, I can't do this. I'm horrible. And I'm like, you will be surprised, but you mm. have to practice. You know, mm-hmm. I always tell them, take your materials. And one of the things in my classes is that I always encourage people to go home and like pull things from their yard and just practice, you know, because for me at the beginning of the season, I have to really like make a bunch of things to kind of get my juices flowing again <laughs> after winter, you know? So yeah. it's, it it is it is definitely a skill I think that you have to work at. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, it's good that you're teaching though, because then you know that keeps you fresh as well, um, seeing through other people's eyes rather than mm-hmm. just designing for weddings and events. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So yeah. you we, before we turned on the recorder or started the episode, we talked a little bit about the fact that you have you are so diversified, and uh, you're kind of at the point in like you know six year old business, you've, you've had some great successes, but now you're trying to evaluate what to keep and what to maybe edit, edit out. I mean, where, describe how that looks for you and, you know, what advice you're giving yourself for, uh, acting like a grown up and having a business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and for any like new person starting a business, I always like to say, try everything. And, and that's what we did is we basically said yes to everything because I wanted to really see if it was going to be for us. And every year we have tried to sit down and kind of assess at the end of the year. I have a real business minded attitude towards things just coming from my background. And so for me, it's really important that this business is sustainable. So I want to be here in 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, and even if it's not me bodily doing everything 30 years down the road, like I still want to have some, you know, I want this business to have a presence in our community. So I have to make sure that it's sustainable and and viable. And, um, so for us, a lot of it's like, where can we optimize? Where are we maybe doing something that we like, but it's losing us money. Um, 
you know, I really want to optimize every year more for the things that I really enjoy and love to do. And then potentially drop back on some of the things that maybe just don't make sense for the business. What do you think those Uh, are? Do you think you have a hunch about what those might be? Well, so for this year, just as an example, I feel like we're getting better at honing in, but this year, one of the things we dropped was we're we're not doing any more wholesale to whole. I I don't know if it's called wholesale to retail, but it's where we sell to a market and then they sell to the, to the customer. Um, the only account that we're keeping is terrain. And that's, um, partially because I really love working with them. Um, but also I think we have a fair amount of customers that actually specifically go to terrain, like to pick up our flowers. So, um, you know, I, and the, yeah, but you're saying like the margins are a little different when you're doing that kind of wholesaling. Yes, definitely. And for, for a lot of markets, actually terrain is, I think one of the exceptions in that their margins are for me fully acceptable and, and, you know, swallow, swallowable as a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, a lot of other smaller markets, a lot of times they're, you know, the margins are extremely slim. And then by the time you factor in all the labor and effort and even getting the flowers to them, then you're losing money. Um, and you know, we kind of struggle with that because we want to be in more places. And again, we want to make it easy for our customers to find our flowers. But on the flip side, if it's just not working for us, then we can't continue to do that. Um, and so for us, we looked at some of these and we said, okay, where can we make this money elsewhere? And if we, if we picked up one extra designer or we sold to two of our designers an extra 10% every week, is that feasible for us? And if so, then there's no reason for us to have to do this other thing anymore. That's a great example. Thank you for breaking it down like that, because I do think that there's this nagging guilt that some folks feel like I should be selling to more grocery stores or I should be wholesaling to, you know, the big brand X wholesaler in my town. But maybe it's not the best, you know, best avenue to move flowers if you can be your own retailer or, you know, just improve your relationships with your core customers who are already buying from you. So I I think those Mm -hmm. are good, good comparisons. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, it's, and, and again, it's nothing to anybody who wants to do, to have that kind of model. Like I have some really good friends in the flower industry who they've built their whole model on selling to big markets and that Mm -hmm. works for them because that's what they're focusing on. Um, and they've come up with a plan that works for their business. For us, it was like so piecemeal and small that I felt like in the end, it just wasn't really helping us the way that we wanted it to. Wow. How exciting. Oh my gosh. Well, you're obviously growing already. You, do you have uh, space undercover at the farm at Oxford as well as field crops? So no, we're all field grown, but wow. I know, but I have been lucky enough to partner with, um, there's another farmer that lives about 10 minutes from us and she has some hoop houses. And so I've partnered with her um, to grow some early crops for us just so that we can have a couple things of our own. Um, so I actually have been loving that because it takes some of the pressure off of me to feel like I have to be adding a lot of infrastructure to the farm that I might not be able to support with labor. And she already has these set up and she needed crops to put in them and needed a market for that. So, um, it's been great for me because I feel like, you know, now I've got some synergy with her and I'm helping her and she's helping me and it's working out really well for our local customers. You're kind of co-farming, uh, in sharing the cost and the profits of, of that, of that, mm-hmm. those particular hot hoop hoop. Yeah. 
What do you call it? Hoop, hoop houses. Hoop houses. <laughs> I made up a new word, a hoop tunnel. <laughs> yeah, it's like high tunnel, hoop house. <laughs> it's like it's like hangry. We'll just use yeah. it now. <laughs> right. Well, that's really great. And I think that's um, why reinvent the wheel when somebody has structures that you can use. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, that's the other thing I talk about too, kind of heading into year six is I, I talk about this a lot with my friends who are kind of in the same place as me, but I feel like when new farmers come in, that there's just this pressure, like to feel like you have to do everything yourself and you're not really a farmer if you're not growing every stem yourself and you're not putting in the work and the time. But, you know, down the road, I've kind of realized that I just can't sustain that. And I don't feel like having a big team of 10 people, like that's just not that that's not in my wheelhouse. Um, and so why not partner with other people who also want to succeed, especially other women in this business and, you know, spread the love a little bit. And we're still growing a ton of stuff on our property, but it's just this specific kind of early season crop that we might need help with. And, and, you know, she's more than, more than open to it. So it's been great. That's awesome. That's a great example. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I could keep talking to you, but we've, we've kind of come to an end of our time. Uh, <laughs> anything else that I didn't ask you, Mara, that you want to make sure I, we include in this episode? Nope. I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I feel like I just went to like a business consulting session with you and I, my brain is, is inspired <laughs> just, just listening to you. And I, I know that this is going to be really inspiring for uh, listeners, both on the florist side and the farmer side, really. Uh, because there's so many florists who want to maybe dabble in growing and, don't have a clue where where the opportunities are, and I think you've highlighted some of those. And farmers who haven't dab- haven't moved into design yet, maybe we'll get some ideas from how you operate your business. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I love that. I mean, one of the, my big things is I just love spreading knowledge and sharing information. My husband's always like, "You like being an expert in what, whatever you talk about," you know. <laughs> um, but I mean, I love when people come back to me and tell me like you shared this little tidbit with me and it really helped me because that makes me feel like what we're doing is also worthwhile that's for great. the larger community. Oh, that's great. That's so wonderful. Well, I just uh, hope that I can get myself out to your neck of the woods sometime in 2020 and visit that cute shop at works and or shop at terrain and buy your flowers or maybe take a workshop from you. It would be really yeah. wonderful if I could do that. <laughs> that would be awesome. All right. Will you share photos of all these groovy things we've talked about? Okay. Yes, definitely. All right. We'll put those in the show notes at deborahprincing.com. And uh, Mara, thanks so much for, for just visiting with me today and uh, just, you know, moving the conversation forward, which we all need. No, thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Deb. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'll be hosting an Instagram live conversation with Mara today, September 27th. So check it out at Slow Flower Society. I'm excited to ask Mara to share an update about the farm at Oxford with you. You'll find all of my Slow Flowers podcast 10th anniversary live chats in the archives there at Instagram. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Mayash Wholesale Florist. Family owned since 1978, Mayash is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., And we're thrilled to partner with Mayash to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms, large and small, around the U.S. And you can learn more at mayash.com. As soon as I wrap up my Instagram Live this morning with Mara, I'm heading to the airport to pick up a very special Slow Flowers guest, Shane Connolly. Shane arrives today. We have eagerly anticipated his arrival from the U.K., 
to lecture here about sustainable floristry, his recent commission to flower the coronation at Westminster Abbey, and his seasonal approach to floral design. Shane will lecture this coming Friday, September 29th in Seattle, and tickets are still available. You can find the link to pre-order your lecture ticket at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 629, or head over to the link in our bio on Instagram for Slow Flowers Society. Shane will be demonstrating several floral pieces after his lecture, and we are ready to be inspired. Both of our following two days, the weekend workshops, are sold out, but I promise to post images of some of the beautiful florals that Shane and his students create for us over at our Instagram feed, and we will publish a recap story with photos in the fall issue of Slow Flowers Journal, so stay tuned. Our final thank you goes to the Gardener's Workshop, which offers a full curriculum of online education for flower farmers and farmer florists. Online education is more important this year than ever, and you'll want to check out the course offerings at thegardenersworkshop.com. I love all this floral goodness, and I am so happy you joined me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowersociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flower Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one base at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.